invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> I want to return where we left off just a few weeks ago in our study through this book of the Old Testament. A book which deals with the subject of divine justice and involves a warning of judgment to those who despise it. Now, 800 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Amos was sent by God into the northern kingdom of Israel where God commissioned him really to cry out against two major sins there in the northern kingdom. On one hand, there was an absence of genuine worship. In its place, there was religious hypocrisy, superficiality, idolatry. On the other hand, there was a lack of true justice or the application of God's righteousness in terms of their social relationships with one another. So really it all boiled down to no love for God and no love for one's neighbor. And that's what Amos cries out against. Now, by way of context, keep in mind that it had really been a time of political instability in Israel up until this point. If you were to go back 150, 160 years before the time of Amos, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two, into two separate kingdoms. After the death of King Solomon, his son Rehoboam was very foolish and made a very foolish decision. Ten of the northern tribes pulled away from the Davidic throne and they formed their own kingdom in the north known as the kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam son of Nebat, as he's called in the New Test, uh, Old Testament, he becomes king in that northern kingdom. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom of Judah remains loyal to the Davidic throne. And that's the way things are in Israel all the way up until the time of the captivity. So there's a time of instability. Uh, you add to that the fact that in Amos' day, Assyria was a growing superpower that was just about to break out of the region. And the Assyrians were brutal. It would be the Assyrians who would carry away the northern kingdom into captivity and just brutalize the northern kingdom. And it was God's judgment as a result of their idolatry and persistent rebellion. And that's what Amos is warning the northern kingdom that's coming uh, here throughout the nine chapters of his book. Now, in particular, in Amos' day, this may sound somewhat strange, especially since there had been political instability in the kingdom, but there also was economic prosperity. And one of the major reasons for that was a long-tenured reign of Jeroboam II, who was king in the northern kingdom uh, during the days of Amos' ministry. Uh, Assyria was still getting its act together, the other nations surrounding Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, they were dealing with their own fair share of problems, and so there was relative ease and stability at the borders, and that led to sort of an expansionist mentality that Jeroboam II had, and it brought about great economic wealth. And so that then fostered religious hypocrisy, religion sort of degenerated to nothing more than superficial exercise and outward observance. The people would go to their religious shrines and offer worship in the name of God, albeit they worshiped idols, but they were very religious in all that they did and all that they pursued. You add to that 
uh, moral degeneracy and perversity, um, there was a complete, a complete breakdown in terms of their relationships. Greed became rampant. Uh, the poor in Israel were being exploited for the sake of those uh, who were wealthy and greedy and and uh, it was just a terrible, terrible time. And God's prophet cries out against the greed and the immorality and the idolatry. And so the sin of Israel was eroding the moral and spiritual fiber of the nation. Material things became more important than spiritual obedience. And it's during those dark times that God raises up Amos as a prophet, commissions him, and sends him into the north with this message of coming judgment. Now, chapter 7, Amos tells us a little bit about himself. Uh, He hadn't been a prophet. Uh, He hadn't even been the son of a prophet. But he was a simple shepherd living in a village just south of Jerusalem. And yet that didn't make any difference whenever the call of God came into his life. By the way, God's not looking for those who are qualified. God qualifies those that he calls. God takes an ordinary man like Amos and commissions him and uses him, gives him a ministry in a cosmopolitan place like the northern kingdom of Israel who cries out against the sins of his day. Now, tragically, the message of Amos largely goes unheeded by the people in the north. They don't want to hear what the prophet has to say. Again, his message is one of judgment designed to bring God's people to the place of repentance. But the people don't want to hear it. So we come to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, we really see the tender heart of the prophet. In fact, Amos, his name means one who bears a burden. And nowhere do you see that burden any more clearly on display than here in this fifth chapter. He's a, he's a prophet who's brokenhearted over the sins of his day. And so really, chapter 5 constitutes a lamentation, a funeral song that the prophet sings over the sins of the northern kingdom. So let's begin reading there, Amos chapter 5, verse number 1. The Bible says, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, That which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Now listen, the people were flocking to their religious shrines thinking that in those religious places they had life. But sadly, as is so often the case, the places became more important than the person to whom the places pointed. You know how easy it is for you to get so caught up with religious tradition that your religious tradition becomes more important to you than the God of the Bible? And the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. That's what had happened in Israel. They had had all of this outward religion. They had made shrines at all of these places that had historical significance and great spiritual significance for the patriarchs. But they themselves had no personal relationship with the God who wanted to have a relationship with them. 
Seek me and live, God says. Seek the Lord and live, verse six, lest he break out in, like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. So do you see how their idolatry and their religious hypocrisy leads to taking advantage of each other, exploiting one another, and treating each other as, as objects rather than people. So uh, their idolatry had led to a diminished view of humanity, and that's what worshiping idols always does. It always reduces those who are made in the image. You see them as being a threat. You see them as being an obstacle. So there's no love for God, no love for their neighbor, and that's what the prophet's calling God's people out for. Verse 13, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. I'll be honest, I could preach a whole sermon just from that verse right there. Sometimes the best thing that we can do in such evil days is just keep our mouths closed. I don't know why it is we feel like we have to have an opinion on every single issue these days. And not only do we feel obligated to have an opinion on every issue, we feel like everybody wants to hear our opinion on every single issue. And so we just share it on all of our social media platforms as if the world really cares. There is wisdom in keeping your mouth closed sometimes. And that's what is being said here in verse 13. Now listen to this practical exhortation. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the saddest of all songs the saddest of all songs. Several years ago, Rolling Stone magazine took a poll of their readers to determine the 10 saddest songs of all time. Now, topping the list were songs like these, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry by Hank Williams. Or He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones. And then The Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. You remember that song? That is a sad song. It's about a little boy who wanted to spend time with his daddy but daddy was so busy and finally when daddy found time to spend time with his son his son was a grown man who was too busy for dad it's a sad song but the song that ranked as the highest on their list the saddest of all time was this song tears in heaven by eric clapton and really it was a song written in memory of his son connor who was just four years old when he fell to his death tragically from a high-rise building in New York in 1991. 
Now usually behind every sad song, there's an even more tragic history from the perspective of the writer. If we think that a song is sad, the person who wrote it probably thinks it's a lot sadder because of the more tragic history that it represents. Well, when we come to Amos chapter 5, the language of this chapter reveals it to be a funeral song, a funeral dirge, a song of lamentation that was raised over someone who had so much promise but tragically died in a very premature way. And what we find here is a sad song by the prophet Amos who's crying out over the sins of wayward Israel. You might could say that in many ways this fifth chapter is an autopsy report of a dead religion illustrating how religious activity is not the same thing as a vibrant, robust faith. It's a clear example Uh, an Old Testament example of what James writes about in chapter 2 of his epistle in the New Testament where he says that faith without works is dead and useless. So really chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Amos place us right in the main section of the book. The first three chapters have revealed the roar of impending judgment, the frightening visions of what that's going to look like are still to come in chapters 7, 8, and 9. So here in the middle of the book, we find that the central themes of the book are being revealed. In these chapters, God's judgment on the house of Israel, it's due to the fact that they had set aside God's word, they had a superficial approach when it came to worship, and they were very selfish in terms of their social ethics, their relationships with one another. In a time of prosperity and affluence, the people of God did not prioritize the house of God, but prioritized their own. And so they assumed the presence of God in their midst, no matter how they lived and how they treated one another. And that kind of presumption led to a place of complacency. And so Amos is crying out against what God's house had tragically become, and his words are a funeral song of lament, lamentation. You'll notice the words mentioned there in the first verse. Now, I want to show you just a few things from this chapter. To be honest, I'm only going to deal with one of these because that word lamentation there in verse number one is so very, very important. Notice with me the lamentation of God's prophet there in the first three verses. You'll notice the chapter begins with this phrase, hear this word. That's the third time that the prophet has used this phrase. Uh, Each chapter, going all the way back to chapter 3, begins with that phrase, hear this word. Chapter 4 begins with that phrase, hear this word. And now we come to chapter 5, it also begins with this phrase, hear this word. So it's conveying a sense of urgency with which God's people are to hear and to heed the message of God. And so what follows then is a lamentation, a funeral song, as the prophet is weeping over the state of affairs among the people of God. In fact, the Hebrew word translated lamentation there in verse number one, uh, it's a word that means an elegy over someone who has died. Literally, it's a funeral dirge. I mean, this would be a very strange way to get their attention having a funeral before the person had actually died. Kind of reminds me of an episode that I saw on what I believe is the greatest television series of all time, Little House on the Prairie. Now some of you may think that 
Other shows are better, but I, I personally think that that's the greatest show that was ever on television. But there was an episode that I remember, the title of the episode is, If I Should Wake Before I Die. And the whole episode is about a character named Amy Hearn. She was a widow who desperately wanted to see her grown adult children who were off doing their own thing. One was a successful businessman living in another city. Uh, there was another, there was a daughter. She was married, had her family. She was living in another city. The youngest was in the military, and so he had, hadn't been home in a long time. So Amy Hearn became convinced that only her funeral would bring her family together for a long overdue visit. And so you know what she did in the episode? She staged her own death, but not before soliciting the help of Charles Ingalls and Doc Baker, who were very reluctant to do it. But as the show kind of goes, the episode goes, it works. She's dressed in black with the black veil. She attends her own wake. Nobody knows that it's her. And she's listening in on all the conversations that people are having. And lo and behold, her children have finally come home. But it took her death to bring them home. And the point is, we often take important people, important things for granted. And something shocking like death grabs our attention like nothing else. So imagine Amos strolling through town, preaching the funeral of God's wayward people. That's what that word lamentation means in verse number one. I mean, it's almost as if their obituary is being printed in the paper before they had actually died, and the prophet is reading it to them all. So the lamentation of the prophet. Notice a few things about this. Uh, to begin with, notice the reason for his lamentation. What was it exactly that had happened from the prophet's perspective? Well, verse 2, Amos says, Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So because of her sin, because of her rebellion, because of her apostasy, because of her disobedience, Israel had fallen and was forsaken. The idols that she had turned to could not provide her any salvation. She was reaping the bitter consequences of her own sin. And so Amos then, as a broken-hearted prophet who's raising his cry over a nation that it turned its back on God. Barring a move of God's spirit to bring revival, there was nothing but ruin just over the horizon. And so to get their attention and convey just how serious their situation was, Amos sings this sad song over the wayward house of Israel. It was not a cause for celebration, but it was a cause for lamentation, mourning, weeping. So the prophet's weeping over sin. He's broken over the spiritual condition of God's people. Again, he's a burden bearer. I don't know if you've thought about this, but all of God's faithful servants in the Bible were often associated with tears. Many of God's servants in the Bible, I mean, there are passages all throughout Scripture that speak of the tears of God's faithful servants. Jeremiah himself was the weeping prophet who said, oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep night and day for the slain of the daughter of my people. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the coming Messiah would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. 
As the suffering servant, he would bear in his body the suffering and the sorrows brought on by humanity's sin. That's why the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. No doubt that's a reference to his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his suffering on Calvary. For me, it was in the garden he prayed, not my will but thine. He shed no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He was a man of sorrows. He grieved. He, he wept, not over his own sin because he was perfect, but he wept over the devastating results of sin throughout humanity. So Amos, he's crying as he's preaching. His tears are like a pressure, uh, a safety valve, the pressure being released. His burden is so great that there's got to be an outlet. And in many ways, this lamentation serves as a window into his soul as his heart is breaking over the devastating results and effects of Israel's sin. Now that's the reason for his lamentation. But then secondly, notice the requirement of it. The requirement of it. As a prophet, he had been faithful to preach. As a prophet, he had simply been faithful to do what God had called him to do, but Israel wouldn't listen. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So judgment then is on the horizon in the form of the Assyrian army. And, and, and Amos says the city that went out a thousand is going to be reduced to a hundred. That which went out a hundred will have ten left. Israel would be an illustration of how the wages of sin is death. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Sin does not lead to life. Sin leads to death. Sin always reduces. Sin always destroys. Sin does not make someone more human. It makes someone less human. Inhuman. Sin is an alien invader into God's perfect creation, according to the Genesis record. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys the lives of individuals. Sin destroys and divides churches. Sin destroys nations. That's what it was doing in the northern kingdom. And this is something that the prophet is brokenhearted about. There's a Scottish preacher by the name of David Legge who said this. He said, I believe that dry-eyed syndrome pervades the church of Jesus Christ in the West today. There are few tears in the eyes of preachers. Few tears in the eyes of people in the pew. Somewhere along the way, we've allowed our tear ducts to become cauterized by the spirit of the age. We're outraged oftentimes over societal sin. You hear about a, a lot of outrage as far as injustice. The, but listen, where is the mourning? Where is the weeping? Where is the broken, tender-hearted person who mourns and weeps over his or her own sin before he or she is outraged over the sins of society or the system or whatever you want to call it? Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who, are, who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Does that not sound like a strange statement to your ears? He's literally saying there, happy are the sad. What in the world is the, is the Lord talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn? You know the Bible talks about all kinds of different types of mourning and sadness. I'll tell you what we need. We need a theology of tears, a theology of weeping. 
If we were to take a concordance or a Bible dictionary and just look through the references where tears, where weeping is mentioned, there'd be a beneficial study for you at some point. You know, the Bible talks about tears often associated with just general sorrow, the sorrow of life. Weeping and mourning over something tragic that's happened. Genesis 23 says that Abraham wept when his wife Sarah died. We wouldn't expect anything less. Weeping associated with the loss of a loved one. Weeping associated with something tragic where plans that we had didn't pan out quite the way we thought they would. And we weep. We're brought to a place of tears. Someone has well said that the ability to cry is a gift from God. You say, what do you mean? The pain and the anxiety that you hold in would poison your entire system if it couldn't be released in tears. Weeping, it's like the release of a pressure valve that lets all of that out of your system so that it doesn't poison and control and dominate your character. A person who's lost the ability to cry oftentimes has had a very hardened heart. Pain and disappointment often perhaps has fostered a sense of just bitterness and a hard heart, but there's something about weeping that permits a healing process to happen in a person's life. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for... Verse 3, listen. My tears have been my food day and night. When they say to me, where is your God? In fact, Psalm 42, we've sung about it. Psalm 42, uh, the psalmist is dealing with this sense of loneliness and isolation, wondering where God is and what God is up to in his life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wondered what the leadership of God's spirit is, what he's doing in your life? Have you needed to hear from God and it seemed like the heavens were silent? Or it seemed like the heavens were brass? It brought you to a place of tears before God. That's where the psalmist found himself. Tears associated with loneliness. Tears associated with grief. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank my God whom I serve. He says, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Here you have an older pastor who's writing to a younger pastor to encourage this younger pastor and he's saying, let me tell you, I remember your tears, young man. Someone says, well, why had he been crying? He was a pastor, that's why he had been crying. He had experienced disappointment. He had experienced hardship. He had experienced defeat. Perhaps he too had experienced loneliness in the ministry. What was the result of that in Timothy? Young Timothy's heart, it brought him to a place of tears and weeping before God. So you've got Amos and Jeremiah, prophets who've been called to preach. They preached with tears. The psalmist weeps because he was lonely. Timothy perhaps weeps because he's discouraged. Acts chapter 20, Paul gives his own testimony with tears. When he's giving his address to the Ephesian elders and he says, watch and remember that for the space of about three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. The apostle Paul knew tears of concern, tears of care, like a spiritual father for his children. Mark chapter nine, here's another account of tears. Uh, There was a dad who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and the tears were flowing down that father's cheeks. 
And he hears these words, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of that tormented child cried out with tears, Lord help my unbelief. What kind of tears were those? Listen, they were the tears of a father's love for his son, that he wanted to see that son delivered from that which was destroying his life. Now, some of you cried those kinds of tears recently. Maybe some children who were absolutely tormented with some things, some lifestyle choices that have you absolutely brokenhearted and up at night pacing the floor as a, as a mom or a dad. So tears, tears stain the pages of God's word. Tears are it's a part of human life, part of our history. But thank God for this promise, Psalm 126, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Your tears don't go to waste. In fact, the Bible talks about God bottling up our tears. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So all of these, the weeping associated with sadness, weeping associated with loss, loneliness, disappointment, weeping out of a sense of love for someone who's struggling with something that just breaks our heart. Listen, tears are a language that God understands. Someone says, well, what is it then that Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are those who mourn? What type of mourning is he referring to? He's talking about the kind of mourning that Amos is doing here in Amos chapter five. Because one verse earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's talking about humility and a humble, repentant posture before God that mourns over sin. A heart that's tender, a heart that's spiritually sensitive when it comes to sin. That's Amos. He's sensitive to all that sin had done, the devastating consequences, that the havoc that it was wreaking upon Israelite society. And so the prophet then becomes an object lesson for what God is looking for in the lives of his people. Now here's the issue. Amos is weeping, Amos is lamenting, but God's people aren't there. They're going about their business They're living for profit, living for money, living for material gain, all the while God's prophet is warning them of what's on the horizon. God is wooing and urging his people to repent and return to him before it's too late. You go back to chapter four, chapter four, it ends with these invitations from God, return to me, return to me, but God's people aren't ready. Things are going to have to get difficult before they're brought to their knees. So the requirement then of this lamentation, but what about the repentance of it? Repentance, mourning over sin. What's the point? The point in the mourning is to bring God's people to a place of repentance. Amos longs to see the people of God come to the place of repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter seven when he talks about godly sorrow that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. He says there are two ways that you can grieve over sin and sin's consequences. There's an ungodly way and there's a godly way. 
An ungodly way uh, tends to be more concerned over getting caught, kind of like a kid that gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He's sad, but he's sad that he got caught. He's not sad over what he had done. He's not sad over a breach of trust and fellowship with the loving Father. But you see, godly sorrow is the kind that produces repentance. Godly sorrow sees sin for what it truly is. Esau, he's a profile in what it means to weep in an an ungodly way because the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 that though he's immoral, he's godless, he sought repentance with tears, but it was not to be found. And the idea is he was not willing to let go of his sin. He hated what it was doing in his life, but he had not come to the place of repentance in his life. You can cry your eyes out about your problems and you can weep about loneliness and you can weep about disappointment. You can weep over consequences of decisions in your life and all of this. But if it's not brought you to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, it will not bring you life. There's only one kind of weeping that brings life and it's the kind that produces repentance that brings you to the foot of the cross of Jesus. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. This is what he's talking about. The kind of lamentation that Amos is raising here in Amos chapter 5. What God was looking for in the lives of his disobedient people. One final thing, what about the result of it or the response to it? The result of it would be forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, and I love how he... For they shall be comforted. (laughs) The comfort's not found in the morning itself. It's what God does in response to it. That's where comfort's to be found. When I grieve over my sin and it produces repentance that looks in faith to Jesus Christ, what does God do? God forgives. God restores. God heals. And there is absolutely nothing more joyful than knowing that your sins have been atoned for, that you've been forgiven, that you've been restored, that you've been set free in Jesus Christ. Do you know that joy? Oh, David knew that joy. It's amazing to me how the biggest saint in the Bible was also the biggest sinner in the Bible. The one who God used to Bring us the Psalms and the wonderful Psalms. What a comfort they are to those who mourn in times of grief, sadness, waywardness. But David, listen, he was a sinner. David committed adultery. And then to try to cover his tracks, David had the woman's husband murdered. He tries to conceal it and move on in his life, but he can't do it until he deals with it. God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him in his sin. And in Psalm 51, David writes about what that involved. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You know what he's doing there? It's lamentation. It's mourning over sin. It's what Amos is doing in Amos chapter 5. It's what Jesus describes there in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. He says, I know my transgression. My sin is before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. He's not making excuses for it. He's not seeking to justify it. He's not sad because he got caught. 
No, this is a godly sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation. That's, the, that's what this is. What are the after effects of this? Well, David writes about that in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the, you know what that word blessed means? It means happy, joyful. Joyful is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away throughout my groaning all day long. It killed me on the inside. I was dying a thousand deaths on the inside when I was trying to cover my sin. Day and night, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. That's conviction there. That's the Spirit's conviction. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then he issues this invitation to us. He says, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. God's, if God's Spirit's convicting you of sin, listen, now's the time to repent. Now's the time to mourn with godly sorrow that produces repentance. And you look to Jesus Christ who suffered and died for you. In Israelite culture, it was often customary when someone was weeping, much in the way that Amos is weeping, lamenting. It was customary for them to want to tear their robe, to tear their garment as an expression of their inward grief. It was an outward display of the inward pain and sorrow that they felt. Joel 2 says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, weeping with mourning. And God says, rend your heart and not your garments. It's not the ostentatious outward display of religious devotion that God's looking for. It's a tender and spiritually sensitive heart. Is that where we are? Is that where, am I, am I so broken over my sin and my need for a Savior? By the way, when you are, you know what that will help you do? It'll help you be patient in your relationships with other people. You won't be so quick to come down on someone else. You won't be so quick to point a finger of accusation at someone else whenever you mourn and you weep over your own sin. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Three questions to consider before we pray. Three questions. Question number one, am I convicted over my sin? Because if I am, that's the Spirit's work, and that's a good thing. The Spirit of God takes God's Word and works to produce conviction in our hearts. And this is the grace of God in your life. The second question, do you grieve over sin with godly sorrow that produces repentance? Sorrow that sees sin for what it is, that understands it is all sin ultimately is against God. That's what makes it so serious. And then the third question, has that godly sorrow brought you to a place of repentance and faith? Spurgeon said something about this. He said that heart-rending, heart-rending 
is divinely wrought and solemnly felt. It's a secret grief personally experienced, not in form outwardly, but deep, a soul-moving work of the Holy Spirit in the inmost heart of the believer. It's powerfully humiliating, completely sin-purging, but it's sweetly preparative. That is, it does a preparing work because it prepares the heart of those who mourn for gracious comfort which a proud and unhumbled spirit is unable to receive. God wants to bring some sweet comfort to your soul, some sweet relief to your soul. He wants to apply the balm of Gilead to your soul. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, oh, I urge you, in an attitude of repentance and faith, look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Understand your sin. It is what it is. Oh, but Jesus died to save you from it. He took your sins and his sorrows and made them his very own. Wow. What a Savior. Lord, thank you for your word. And in an age of outrage, God, it'd be easy for us to want to decry the sins of our nation. And Lord, we do stand for what's true. And our heart is grieved over the trajectory and the, the decadence that we see in society. Unbelief. But God, we look into the mirror of your word and we do some homework and we mourn and we grieve over our sin where there's been a breakdown in our relationships with one another, may you forgive us. Where our homes are filled with unnecessary turmoil because of pride, jealousy, and envy, oh God, forgive us. Thank you that you're a God who forgives, who restores, who heals. Do it again, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.